0: guys, this is Pastor Justin Bowers, and you're listening to the New Community Podcast. Uh, we're thrilled that you're listening today, and we hope that this is a great experience for you. I wanted to let you know that you can support the work of New Community and all that God is doing down here in West Virginia by going to New Community WB and then clicking on the Give tab uh, we would love to have your support and we would be excited that you would journey with us in all that God has called us to to be a people finding and following Jesus beyond Sundays enjoy the podcast okay second samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be today second samuel chapter 11 i want you to know as we start when i prep to teach when i prep to share on sunday mornings when i get ready to preach there are weeks that it just things come together well and smoothly and i'm like okay we're ready and and then there are weeks where there are There are moments where I start studying something and it could be related to the scripture or it might be just an idea I have and I just get lost down those rabbit holes. And for me, that's probably one of my greatest joys is when those things happen and I just get to trace it and go, where's this gonna take? So I'm just gonna tell you, there's two rabbit holes today that I fell in this week. One, I'm starting with, you're going to be like, what does this have to do with anything? I get it. Stay with me. The second one is going to, I think, transform our understanding of this story. So first rabbit hole right now, you're ready. There's something called a dissociative fugue state. How many of you have heard this phrase or know what this is? If you've seen Breaking Bad, he acts one out. It's fake. It's pretend. Now, dissociative fugue states are the rabbit hole that I fell in this week because I read a story of a man named Michael who in February of 2013 woke up in a hospital in California, and he was completely unaware of who he was, and even though he had been admitted to the hospital holding a U.S. passport and a California ID, he woke up insisting that his name was Johan Eck, he was Swedish, and he could only speak Swedish. It was fascinating because over the next several weeks, the hospital staff found photos showing that he had actually lived in Sweden as a child. One psychiatrist came in and diagnosed Michael with what he called, now hang on for this, transient global amnesia, in a fugue state. Now, this is a combination of transient global amnesia, which is memory loss that usually doesn't last long, but it happens in a fugue state. And a fugue state is a thing that was introduced by diagnosis clear back in 1901. What the word fugue means, thats hard for me to say fugue, means running away in French. That's where it came from, running away, getting away from something. And a fugue state is a type of amnesia where a person forgets certain aspects of their identity. So they might forget their name, they might forget their family connections. Sometimes they actually wander off and go somewhere else to start engaging in a new life for a while, not consciously aware of the past life. Now, the thing about fugue states, are so fascinating because often people enter into them, their brains kind of click into them because they've experienced trauma. One woman was found walking around a military base. When she came back, she was not she realized I'm not in the military. Why am I on this base? She recognized eventually that she had been married and was married to a man who was a military soldier on that base and she thought he was having an affair and somehow her brain took over and she ended up there. Happy ending to that story. He wasn't and they're fine. Everything's good. Often, fugue states are short periods. Most who go through this suffer for just a a short time. One woman, though, Jody Roberts, vanished in 1985, and it was 12 years before she resurfaced and still had no idea who she was so interesting to me people will wake up from these recognizing where am i what's going on and suddenly everything's come back they've woken up in fields one guy woke up in new york city and he didn't realize he was suffering until he went to sign his name and couldn't remember what it was he went to a hospital and suddenly everything came back now here's the good news if you're an anxious person I, this is terrible like i'm telling you about something you didn't know existed and now you're going oh great one more thing to worry about 0.2% of the population suffers from fugue states so Guys, if you start acting like you're having this, it ain't going to work, okay? So let me just tell you about this. This, What this says to me, this rabbit hole I fell in this week, is the brain is a super weird thing, right? Like if you ever look at anything about the brain, it's weird, it's strange. But here's what I know. So are we. <laughs> So are you and so am I because many of us have moments. We have places in life. We have decisions and conditions where we find ourselves in a similar spot as the victims of a fugue state. We find ourselves in a situation where we kind of wake up one moment and go, how in the world did I get here? How did this happen? Last week, we started this series called the comeback. And I I told you a couple things. I said, number one, as we go through this series over the next several weeks, Jesus loves writing comebacks. Like that's the thing I want you to grab onto. Jesus loves it. His presence in our life, his presence in our world. I I think think Jesus, as he spends his time, he goes, oh, watch what I'm going to do in this person's life. And I also said this to you, many of us, many of you need a comeback. I know that. I recognize that. That we've been in places, we've been in in postures and situations in life, and maybe you're there now where you go, I need a comeback. And I said to you last week, if you want a comeback, if you want Jesus to start writing a comeback in your life, then then what that means is you're going to need to, first of all, recapture your heart. You're going to have to get honest about where your heart is. You're going to have to remember where it was and connect those dots and make a choice to get back up. Now let me just frame the next couple weeks for you of this series. I hope you'll come back. Today's hard. Today's a hard message. Next week is going to be a hard message. These are not easy conversations. Now, I will say both this week and next will end with great hope. But it's a journey through mud to get there. And I say that because the reality is when it comes to being knocked down, when it comes to us being in a position where we say, I need to come back, the place where we've been or maybe, maybe we find ourselves right now, the, the moment we feel knocked down or knocked out, there's basically two types of these knockouts and these knockdowns. The first is you need to come back when you've been knocked down by something outside of yourself. So it's somebody else or something else, some situation, some circumstances, some relationship that you entered into, and amen, and it, it just knocked you down. She's absolutely fine. We love it. We love that, but, 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 but we get knocked down and we go, how am I going to come back from this? I had no control over this. It just happened. But then there's a second type of comeback that we need, and this is what I want to talk about today. That's a comeback from your own failures and your own fault. That's a self-induced comeback. Do you remember the cartoons where the Bugs Bunny would be fighting the guy in the boxing rink and the boxer would wind up and Bugs Bunny would just move and he'd punch himself and knock himself out? That's what we do to ourselves. Some of you need to watch more cartoons. Now, these are hard talks because to get to a comeback, we have to understand the fall. And I would say this, no matter no matter how you've fallen, whether it's your fault or someone else's, it hurts. And we have to talk about the hurt because fugue states so closely mirror so many conversations that I've had with people who find themselves in need of a comeback. And specifically today, conversations with people who need a comeback because of their own brokenness, their own failures, their own See, I've sat with these folks and I've listened to them, I've prayed with them, I've shed tears with them, and I want you to hear this. in nearly every single one of those conversations, at some point we come to a place where the person I'm with utters that same question: "I don't know how I got here. How did I get here? How did this happen? See, we know that question, right? It's not a fugue state. In those moments, we can't blame our brain or or get that diagnosis that says we totally lost time, but it feels very similar. See, I I would imagine that many of you understand that question, how did I get here? I bet we've all been in moments where we find ourselves standing in a place where we need to come back and knowing but not understanding the reality that we put ourselves in this place. Maybe you're asking that question in your life right now, "How, how did I get here? Maybe you've made decisions and you've drifted into situations that are like really close or they're right on the brink of of ending your marriage or ending a relationship or or you've come to a place maybe where you feel like you're just right on the precipice of of losing the heart of your family, whether it's your kids, your spouse, your extended family. You feel like something's got to give and it's about to break. Maybe you've compromised your integrity financially, relationally, emotionally, and you know there's consequences coming. You can see them coming. Or, if you're a student, you've given a whole semester away to just pursuing your own gratification and fulfilling your own pleasure. And it's all coming down on you right now. And seeing all these things, I-, I think this is the tension we feel in those moments, in those seasons. See, number one, I-, I think we know it's our fault, but we still ask the question, how did I get here? Like, we understand we've made some choices and some decisions, but we still don't really know how it happened, how did, I get, how did it get this bad, how did it get this serious, how did it get this critical so quickly? See, one of the reasons I wanted to do this series was, frankly, because I'm tired of seeing so many of you pouring out your hearts and uttering those words, how did I get here? How did this happen? I, I'm, I'm a little bit worn out from getting invited into your fight when the fight's already over. See, I think some of us are, are, are thinking that we've, we've just entered the first round and we passed out and they already went to commercial and we're knocked out. And I think we need to understand that. See, these next couple weeks aren't easy, but we, we need them because for you to be you, for you to start to recapture your heart and, and this journey of a comeback, you need to go through the mud to find the river and, and it's worth it, it's so worth it. So we're going to jump in today, and, and this story is a story that I believe if you, if you grew up in religious settings, you, you understand, you know some of this story, probably really familiar with it. Let me, let me just ask, how many of you know the David and Bathsheba story? You, you grew up in vacation Bible school and Sunday school, and okay. If you don't know the story, can I just say this to you? You're in a better place than the rest of us today. So if, you've, if you're not familiar with this story, because we have a lot of assumptions that you don't have and that's great. So I want to read this story. Look at verse 1. We're going to start. Here's here's what it says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, which is just such a cool way to start a story, right? It was spring, there were flowers and bunnies and kings went to kill people. Like that's that's what's going on. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Now watch this. Underline, take notes. We're going to come back to this. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. That's parentheses. (laughs) We'll explain it in a minute. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was her husband. And Joab sent him to David. Now, before we jump in, I want to just reemphasize, if you've never heard this story, you're already thinking this is a weird part of the Bible to be talking about when you're talking about comebacks. This is kind of strange. If you've heard this story, I know this. You have assumptions about this story already. And I want to tell you the second rabbit hole I went in this week, they're wrong. Okay? Your assumptions are wrong because I had these assumptions, and I learned a lot this week. Let me tell you why. Go ahead and bring that picture up, Mike. This is a picture from the 1951 film David and Bathsheba, and Goliath is dying, apparently. That's Gregory Peck, Susan Hayward. Anybody actually seen the movie? Kids, there used to be these things called VHS tapes, and you could, you could rent it, um, This is David Bathsheba, 1951. I know, old school. Now, here's the deal. This is one example. This film is one example of a narrative specifically about Bathsheba that has been created from this story that I realized this week I've trusted to be true all my life, and it's completely wrong. See, we assume a lot about this story. When you look at art, when you read books, when you see things you're taught in Sunday school and they use those felt boards and terrible, Um, we have assumptions about Bathsheba. Now, in this film, Bathsheba is portrayed as what many of us assume to be true of the story. She is, in this movie, a seductress who is just as guilty as David of the adultery, being committed. At one point in the film, this is what she says. Now, consider the writing. It's 1951. Go with me. Here's what Bathsheba... Carrie, I thought about having you come and act this out. The first service said, don't do that. Okay, so here's what Bathsheba says to King David as they joined together. I used to watch you every evening as you walked on your terrace, always at the same hour, always alone. Today I heard you had returned. He's playing the harp. I had heard that never had the king found a woman to please him. I dared to hope I might be that woman. If the law of Moses is to be broken, David, let us break it in full understanding of what we want from each other. Tramp, right? (laughs) Can I just say to you, first of all, we need to re- Think Bathsheba. And here's why. If you just read the source that we have, the scripture, here's what we find out. Number one, Bathsheba is bathing. I joked about this last week and many other times, and I was wrong because I perpetuated this myth. The scripture tells us in those parentheses that she is purifying herself from the monthly menstruation. This was, listen, a Jewish religious law that probably, most likely, I would argue absolutely did not require that she be naked. The culture would not have accepted a woman on the roof naked in Jewish world. That's absolutely ridiculous. We have a lot of assumptions about this story, and she was probably simply performing a ritual cleansing on the roof of her house. She is, at this point in the story, obeying the law of Moses, not trying to tempt David. Now watch. She doesn't know she's being watched. She's being victimized. At this point, most times, as we see in this film, she's seductress, right? The 1951 film actually paints her almost as a stalker, like she's creepy. That's kind of what's going on. Now, here's the other fascinating thing. This this blew my mind. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of one of David's chief political counselors, a man named Ahithophel. Her father was Eliam. Eliam was one of David's 30 mighty men. You can read it in 2 Samuel 23. What that tells us is that number one, Bathsheba probably grew up around the palace. She probably understood this life. Number two, she was much, much, much grossly younger than David. One scholar said that that, that she was most likely about 21 and David was about 51. Creepy story now, right? You with me? So let's press this a little further. The young woman's husband, Uriah, is fighting a war that the writer makes very clear David should have been fighting. David remained in Jerusalem at the time when kings went off to war. The young woman has grown up in the palace, probably seen David take the kingdom, and now she's being seduced or approached by David. She's following the faithful law of Moses by cleansing herself, and he, in his 50s, sees her from the palace roof, brings her to his house. The process goes on. She didn't know what was going on. But what we know is that in this culture women would not often say no to men and subjects certainly did not say no to the king. Kings got what they wanted. And if your husband was at war and you were home and the king sent word to come to my palace, you might just think he has news of my husband from the war. Not only this, but throughout this story in the in the, the scripture that we have, forget the movies. We see David committing the action of the story. He saw Bathsheba. He sent messengers to talk to Bathsheba, to bring Bathsheba to him. And the writer says, he slept with her. If there's anything clear in this story that we've misinterpreted, David, not Bathsheba, is guilty of the darkness in this moment. He is king. The king takes what he wants. The king gets what he wants. He looked down literally from his roof, from his position of power and privilege, and he saw something he wanted. Bathsheba had no power to even return his first gaze. She didn't even know she was being looked at. David had a responsibility, I would say, to fight to protect his people, and Bathsheba, who was husband, was fighting the battle. David should have been. David acted on this. See, this substantially darkens the story, doesn't it? If we were telling this story today, you know how we would frame this story? This is going to be uncomfortable for those of you that grew up in vacation Bible school. David was guilty of something called power rape. That's what he did. David was in full control of the situation, and he took advantage of it, and his power and authority would have made it nearly impossible for Bathsheba to refuse him. But the darkness of this story doesn't cease there. David's descent continues. See, David would have been done with this young woman. That's what the scripture says. He sent her home. He was ready to be done with this evening of pleasure for himself. But it only comes back that she says, I'm pregnant. It's the only action she takes. And it's at that point that David says, I've got to find some way to cover this up and protect myself. And so he comes up with this plan. He says, go and get Uriah from the battle lines. Bring Uriah home. And when Uriah gets home, he says, Uriah, welcome home, you fierce warrior. Now go enjoy your wife. Go have the, the time of your life. Here's some alcohol. Take it with you and have a good evening with your wife. And Uriah says, no, why would I do that when my brothers are fighting the war? Parentheses, that you should have been. And David says, well, why don't we drink in my house, and then I'll send you home, and, and you'll forget your mind, and you'll go enjoy your wife. And Uriah goes home, and he sleeps outside because he has so much integrity. Now, here's where the escalation continues. Look at verse 14 as David sends Uriah back to the war. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Now, How many of you would have just read the letter, right? Like, that's how much integrity this guy has. Verse 15, And he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now don't miss this moment. The king who should have been in the battle has moved from simply staying out of the war to now killing the men of his own army. This is a descent into darkness. Verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So yeah, Uriah died, but now David's responsible not just for Uriah's death, but also for the men of his army. This is a slow burn. Not only does the innocent Uriah die, but so many others. David wanted something, and what he wanted led him into the darkness. And this is where the writer at the end of the chapter kind of offers final observations. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She wasn't the Susan Hayward going, yes, now I can go be with the king and break the law of Moses. She grieved. By the way, that's the only emotion in this entire story that's described, was on the morning of Bathsheba. Verse 27, after the time of grieving was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But, watch, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, you know what's, you know what's funny to me? My accusation of David as a potential rapist has some of you rattled this morning. You know what's funny to me about that? You've been okay with him being a murderer for years. See, here, this, this is the tension, is the darkness of this story is so dark. I had so badly missed this understanding of what this story is really about, that Bathsheba is the victim of a king's power, that she's the victim of his desires, that I felt the same feelings as I was studying this week that I get when I turn on the news today. That our world is dark, that it's broken, that the evil of humanity is so prevalent and we're seeing every day more people, more leaders, more pastors, more of our friends falling from their positions. And it's not because they're jumping off the cliff to ruin their lives, it's because they're making small decision after small decision after small decision that puts them in a place of slow descent. I also wondered this. I wondered if at any point, I mean, can you imagine, here's the responsibility David had. Uriah is killed in battle. These soldiers are killed in battle, and they bring their bodies home, and they're hosting the ceremonial funeral to honor their sacrifice in the war. Guess who gets to read the memorial? The king. See, I wondered if at any point if King David was reading this memorial and maybe in his head just going, how did I get here? How did I get here? See, for you today, I want you to hear this. If you're in that place where you're asking that question, how did I get here? Or if you've ever been in that place where you've asked that question, or if you're on the brink of, of destroying your life or the lives of others around you, I love you in this moment enough simply as your pastor to tell you the truth. Listen, you are just as guilty as David. You're just as guilty. See, I know this is the hard part. You want me to just bypass this. You want me to get to the Jesus part, right? The grace part, the compassion and mercy. And God called David a man after his own heart. Let's go there. See, we will get there, but to get there, for you to have the potential of a real comeback, to even get close to recapturing your heart, you need to know this, and you need to admit this. Every single one of us carries guilt as deeply as David. And friends, just to tell you the truth, I'm tired of trying to lead people closer to Christ who will refuse to admit their own guilt, not because I'm mad at you, not because God's mad at you, but simply because you can't come back until you admit your guilt. You can't do it. You can't find full redemption until you realize the full darkness. Light is so much greater when we recognize how dark darkness is. To your darkest moments, your most consequential decisions that brought you pain or pain to the people around you, those places did not happen by chance. It wasn't a fugue state. And again, I love you enough to tell you Simply, that you're guilty. I'm guilty. We, like David, have caused great pain to everyone around us, to ourselves. And we find ourselves in those moments going, How did I get here? And the answer is, You got there by being you. That's what took place. But here's what else I knew. And I, and I understand this. None of us woke up one morning with a natural desire to destroy our life, we didn't do it. We didn't wake up and go, You know what? How can I wreck my marriage today? How can I strategize and get a good plan to start some addiction that's going to overpower me? What are the steps? What steps can I list out that, that will allow me to, down the road, lose the hearts of my children? See, we're guilty But we also find ourselves in places where the darkness feels deeper than we ever imagined. And that question, how did I get here, is so critical because it's essential we understand how we end up knocked down by our own punches. So so here's what I want to do today. I want to give you a principle that I think is super important. Now, my question is this. When you go swimming, how many of you, like, just dive in people? Like, we're just going to get wet. We're going to jump off the board, go deep. So how many of you are tiptoe people? Like, let's just go slow. How many of you are just lazy and don't want to raise your hand today? Awesome. Thanks, thanks for being here. Um, see, tiptoe people go slow, right? We, we take, if it takes us two hours, we're fine with that. Like, that water's cold. You okay? you okay? All right. So we're tiptoe people. But some of you are jump and dive in people. See, some of us look at our lives, and we go, how did I get here? And we think, when did I jump off that cliff? What I want to say to you is the principle is this. The deepest failures of your life involved a slow descent, not a deep dive. You didn't wreck your life. You didn't wreck your marriage. You didn't break the hearts of people around you or get addicted to pornography because you chose to dive in deep. You took slow steps, tiptoeing in. It's exactly what David did. It's exactly what I do. And it's exactly what you do. And so how do those steps happen? Here, I'm going to give you three things very quickly, I hope. I got a lot. I could cover. But here's what we see in David. Here, here's the first thing that I think is his slow descent, his tiptoe. The first thing is this. It's isolation. See, David started his descent into this darkness where he would become a rapist and a murderer by isolating himself. There's a phrase at the beginning of this chapter in Samuel, and we're told, Spring, it's the time when kings go off to war. But David remained in Jerusalem. That's isolation. Translated, the king stopped living his mission As the king, he gave up what he was called to do. David conceded his calling. He abdicated his assignment. He let go of the life work that God had called him to. And in all of this, David did exactly what so many fallen leaders do at the beginning of their own descent he isolated himself. He chose to stop living into his mission as king. But when he chose to stop living into the mission, he also made a choice to step back into the shadows. See, listen to this David had 30 mighty men, those were his brothers, his dudes. Like, you can read these stories. They went out, they killed lions, they killed bears. One guy, this is what it says, he went down in a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Do you know what that means? The lion was, couldn't do anything, and it was snowing, and it was cold, and he jumped in. These were the guys David hung out with, and they're off fighting the war, and David is isolated. They were fighting the battle where David should have been. See, here's what I think. Many of you want to find ways out of your failures out of your brokenness. I, I've talked to those of you who, who I understand you battle things, you battle addiction, you fight pornography, you fight, you, maybe you've committed adultery and, or, or you've done things where it's, you've just compromised your integrity, financial fraud or, or, or whatever, and you know what this means. And in almost every single case, the common thread is isolation. It starts with isolation. In this church, we say this. This is our core value, one of them. We are greater than I. I want you to understand, that's not just something nice we put on paper. You know what that is? That's an integrity check. As your pastor, I I want to be a we and not an I. I don't want you to walk around talking about new community going, I go to Justin's church. It's not my church. It's our church. Because we are greater than I. And when I start to function as an I, you know what that word starts with? Isolation? I. I. It starts to allow me to walk in that. And and I know this. Listen, loneliness is real. Like, I get it. I feel it. As your pastor, I feel it. It is really hard to not feel lonely in leadership. Leaders are some of the loneliest people I know. But you know what tendency lonely people have? And this is going to be hard. If you're a lonely person, this is going to hurt. But I say this out of love because I deeply understand it. Lonely people tend to lean into loneliness. We tend, to feel, we tend to feel like that's normal. That's where we should be. That's my normal way of life. I should just be lonely all the time. When you had a monster under your bed and you were a kid, you didn't sit there and go, you know what? I should just deal with this on my own. You didn't do that. You screamed, Dad, get in here. Bring the flashlight. Like, get the guns, whatever it is, Just is. We're West Virginia. Bring the guns, Dad. Just kill the monster. Kill it. See, but when loneliness sets in, we tend to think we can fight the monsters on our own. See, hopelessness, loneliness, they're much bigger monsters when you don't have friends around you with flashlights. That's the way it goes. When you step out of loneliness, you start to say the monster's not as big as I thought it was. I've told this story before, but I love the parable of the man who's stuck in the hole. (laughs) Not the same guy. It was a different guy. He killed the lion in a pit on a snowy day try to keep up. The man's in the hole, and his buddy comes along, and he say, he jumps in with him. He's like, what are you doing? You could have pulled me out. We could have gotten out. And the guy says, I've been in this hole before, and I know how to get out of it. See, when we choose to step out of isolation, we start to realize we're not alone. So men, what does it mean to stop isolating yourselves? Women, what does it mean to stop isolating yourself? Some of you have been invited to a women's retreat so many times that you're out of excuses, and so you just walk out of here and you don't make eye contact with any other women. I'm just going to go, 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 go. And you're isolating. And I want to encourage you to step out of that. Can I just say to you, listen, you can't afford to be too busy for community. You can't do that. We, we are, when we host programs, we're not about Programs. Like when I'm talking to you for six weeks in a row, I, and some of you just check out every time I'm like, hey, youth ministry is kicking off, parents, pay attention. And you're like, blah, 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 like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. That's what you hear. When we're talking about that, listen, I'm not offering programs. You, There's so many better programs in our community. There's sports and art and music and dance, and I know you're all signed up for it, and I don't know where your money goes, but go, like do it. We're not offering that. We're offering communion. We're offering something that connects kids in relationships with each other, and so they're following Christ together. We're offering connection to leaders that are going to ask them, how was your walk with Christ? What are you doing? When we offer programs for you, we're inviting you into communion. There is no other organization on the planet that focuses solely and primarily on helping others find Christ as they journey with each other. We have to come out of isolation. Here's the second part of this, boredom. David wasn't just isolated, he was bored. Now, here's how we read this story. You ready? David gets up, and we think it's like a midnight seduction. Are you with me? Because seduction happens at midnight. It's kind of what we're thinking. The music's playing. He's out on his roof. She's like, hey, I need a bath. It's 1 a.m. That's how we picture this. You know when this was? It says David laid down in the evening. This was Jeopardy hour, right? This is Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy time. There's nothing on but the news and bad game shows. And David wakes up and goes, I'm bored. Like, let's go for a walk. Women did not ritually cleanse themselves at midnight. I hate to tell you, that's not what's going on. David is bored. He's floundering. Doesn't this nail us as humanity? Right, like the minute we're bored, what do we do today? We whip out our cell phones. Oh, what's going on? Do you know the majority of the junk that's created for consumption on the internet? The porn, the clickbait, the, the, the news articles that so many of you want to tell me is real, and Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and there's 88 reasons why, and here we go. There's things that make you angry and fearful. All of those are created by people who say, how can we create something that when they're bored, they're going to click it? We want them to click because they're going to be bored. We're going to put this out there, and then the minute that they're bored, it's something shocking, something scary, something makes them angry, something that tempts them, something that's to do. We're going to do this. See, here's the reality, friends. We have to begin to battle boredom with a balance of rest and quest. Now, hang with me. I'm going to explain this. The tension when it comes to David is this. He should have been fighting a battle. He should have been fighting a war, but he needed a nap. Some of you feel that way. Like, I feel like I should go fight a war, but I'm just too tired to get out of my bed. I like my slippers better than my sword. Like, that's what David's going through. Most of us today are living lives where we don't understand the balance between the rest that God has invited us to and the quest that God has set out for us. You have a mission from God, a meaningful mission from God, but you typically, like me, take one of two options. One, you're too tired to pursue your quest. You're distracted by too many other good things. You're too busy. You've got jobs. you got money to worry about. You've got extracurricular stuff. you got to keep up with the neighbors so that their kids don't get ahead of yours in the scholarship battle of who comes out of your street. Like, we we got to go that route. You play comparison games or insecurities, friends that we feel like demand our time, when all we need to do is rest. And the God of the universe said, hey, I'm going to give you seven days, but one of them don't do anything. Just stop. Just slow down and enjoy it. We've lost this idea of Sabbath. Some of you have lost this idea of Sabbath so much that you sit in these sermons sleeping. Do you recognize that? You're so tired. Stay home next Sunday. Get some rest. See, many of us, that's the reason we're missing. Some of us, though, we're rested, but we're too lazy to focus on our quest. We're too too, uh, distracted by things. We think everything matters, so nothing matters. You're like the dog on Ups. Squirrel, squirrel. Like maybe this is what God has. Maybe this is what God. and we're just chasing all this stuff. Years ago, I, I was challenged to write down what is it that God has put in your life as your mission, as your quest, as your trajectory. And I will never forget clarifying for myself. it is to reveal the favor and delight of God to my wife, my daughters, and all who I would have the opportunity of coming in contact with. Friends, that has defined for me so much of who I am. And when I realize I'm out of balance, it's when I've lost sight of the quest. When I'm angry at my kids, I've lost sight of revealing the favor and delight of God to them. David was isolated. He was bored. Here's the final part of this. David's, David's slow descent centered on this, his pride, his power, and his privilege. See, here's what I know. You know what starts to happen when you're isolated and you're bored? You start to believe that the world owes you You start to think that you have certain rights and you're entitled to certain things. And you know why that is? Because when you're living life alone, when you're a king who's living life alone and you're bored out of your mind, the only voice that you hear in your head is the voice of a king. And and you go, whoa, I'm the king. I can do what I want. See, David was alone. He was bored. And here's here's his descent. Here's the steps. He saw something he liked. He desired it. He decided he wanted what he liked, so he had intent to go get it. He sent servants to go get what he wanted. He pursued it, and then he acted on what he thought he deserved. This all came from this realm of something called pride, power, and privilege. So when we ask, how did I get here? See, it may start with isolation and boredom, but chances are the small decisions you made that led to your descent or are leading to your descent right now. Chances are those things came from action you took where pride said to you, well, you deserve this. You've worked hard. You've been battling that relationship for so long. You've been just just staying away from things, so now you deserve it. The most fascinating thing to me in this whole passage is that at the beginning of 2 Samuel, at the beginning of this book, the king, King Saul, dies. And he flounders, he stalls out. He was the one God's people had chosen and they said he's gonna honor God. And King Saul has this awful death and, and it's terrible. And at the beginning of, the, of 2 Samuel, King David mourns. He grieves for Saul. In verse 27 of chapter one, he says, how the mighty have fallen. That's what King David says. As he takes the throne, look at King Saul, how the mighty have fallen. His pride got to him. His failures got to him. He rejected God. And just 10 chapters later, the man who grieves for a king who's fallen because of pride is now fallen because of pride. Two weeks ago, I found out that a church where I had worked for about three years in Pittsburgh, and a guy that I worked with doing the finances of that church that he had been embezzling money from that church for seven years. And over the course of seven years, he had received $1.2 million from that church. They had a decent budget. And his wife was also an accomplice, and both of them were arrested. This is a good guy, I thought. And now they're both sitting in a jail somewhere, and their college daughter, who's a freshman, and their two high school kids are facing a life that's been wrecked. And I thought, how did it get there? Like, how did it get that bad? How, did, how, did, how, how do you come back from that? And, and here's the thing. You know what I recognize or, or, or I'm trying to recognize about the darkness of my own heart? Here's the thing. I can look at that and go, how did that happen? Or I can look at that and go, you know what? I'm just a couple bad decisions away from that. Like, I'm not that far from that. See, when I look at this guy's outcome and the consequences, it feels so far away from me. But remember, no one wakes up one morning and goes, how am I going to steal a million dollars? How am I going to wreck my family? How am I going to ruin everything around me? And the reality is, none of us are that far from total wreckage. As we start to wind down today, I, I want to say this, and I just want to sidebar for a couple minutes here. women. Can I just say to you, first of all, I'm a father of daughters. You know that. I have three of them. I want them to be fierce. I'm praying that they fall so in love with Jesus that they become just these spiritual, intellectual giants that refuse to settle for some half-rate guy who says he knows Jesus but lives like Satan. Like, that's my prayer, unashamedly. I want their lives to be full, to be filled with the adventure God has for them. I long for that. But as the father of daughters, here's what I know. I understand to some extent the battle for their heart that is already raging in the world around them. I see the battles that you as women face, the battles of insecurity, the way that you fight to define yourself, the battles of anxiety, depression, of, of guilt, and not feeling like you measure up. I see those, and I want you to know that those are battles that you will never win in isolation. It's not going to happen. You're never going to win that battle by being bored and falsely entertaining yourself. You're never going to win that battle by just thinking, well, look at me. I deserve this. So sisters in Christ, can I just say this to you? You need each other. You need each other. You need to refuse to settle for anything less than God's mission, God's quest in your life. You need to not be so proud that you humble yourself enough to pour your heart out into the world around you. Some of you need to stop settling for relationships that you think might give you something more that you want and say, God, I'm looking for the man that you created for me. I'm looking for the purpose that you created for me and maybe it's not a man, maybe it's just a life. Maybe you called me to live something like that and I'm gonna take people with me. That's who I am as a woman of God. And then I want to say this to the men. I'm not a father of sons. I used to think that I wanted to be, but now I'm, I'm good. Like, my kids don't break stuff like your sons. Like, this. we're good. But I have to tell you this. I'm more and more concerned with what is happening culturally in terms of manhood. I get to go to the middle school every week and hang out with some middle schoolers and as much as I can. And, and those boys, there are boys that I know and I hurt for them because it's hard and it's awkward today to try to figure out as an adolescent boy, as a young adult boy, what it means to become a man. Listen, there, there were days when the tribe would come in and they would kidnap all the 12-year-old kids. And they would take them out in the woods and they'd say, you don't come back to the village till you kill a lion. You go kill a lion. And, and can I just say to you, when those boys came back to the village having killed a lion, they said, listen, there's no doubt we are men. We're not going to doubt that ever again because we saw the lion, we attacked it, and we killed it, and now the rest of the village gets to get better because we killed a lion. Now, what I'm saying is not this. I'm not advocating for unhealthy versions of masculinity. Uh, The the toxic masculinity that we talk about, that's apparent, that's evident in David's story. But I also want to just proudly and and, and as loud as I can say this, I am so tired of the assault that our world spends more time telling boys and men what they shouldn't be rather than modeling and embodying for them what they should be. Like it's time that we start to live. And Christ followers, can I just say this to you men in the room, you're going to lead the way. If you want to see young men become young boys become men, you have to start to demonstrate for them what it means because all they're hearing from the world is what a man shouldn't be, shouldn't be. Don't be this, don't do this, don't do this. Do you realize the world is more legalistic than the church now? And We're being called to model and embody what the men of Christ should be. What we're for is greater than what we're against. Men, we call our men's ministry here, man up, not, not in some macho chauvinistic way, but to be men of Christ, to take these younger guys under your wings and let them see what it means to love God with all that they are, to love your family so deeply, and to pursue Christ at all costs. So isolation, no, we'll never go there. Boredom, why would we be bored when we're living the adventure of God? And pride, what do I have to be proud about until I pour myself out I'm going to invite the band to come. Here's what I want to say to you today. When people are getting ready to destroy a building, when they're going to get rid of a building, they're going to demolish a building, you basically have two approaches. One is you attack the building from the outside. You bring everything you've got against it. You bring the ball and crane, the ball. You just just hammer it, and all the damage is evident, and everybody sees it, and it falls apart. The other way is that you perform what they call an implosion. And an implosion, you can't see that it's going to take place until it actually takes place because they strategically put explosive devices at all the critical points of the building. And when it goes, it goes inward. Friends, the first comeback that you're going to need to be invited to is the comeback from your own implosion. Some of you, your isolation has placed an explosive device somewhere strategic in you. Your boredom, has put something in you that's killing you right now. I, maybe it's that pornography starts there, guys. That's, that's just the way it is. It's that boredom. It's that false entertainment. The pride is another place where those explosive devices get placed. See, David says, how the mighty have fallen. And then he falls. Now, here's the, here's the good news. See, the darkness of this story is that we might today say David was a raping, murderous king. The darkness of our own stories that every single one of us in this room are just a couple steps from having our own lives labeled just as strong. Some of you are there already and you know the labels that you've been given and you doubt you can come back. The good news is this, even when great kings fail, Jesus still loves writing comebacks and God has always been about giving opportunities to come back even, now listen, don't miss this, even for the rapist, even for the murderer and the fallen frauds like you and I. That's who God's about bringing back. When God freed the Israelites from Egypt, he said, I'm going to send an angel from the camp and I'm going to slaughter the Egyptians so that you're free to go. And he said to the Jewish people, he said, what I want you to do is to slaughter the Passover lamb and then to take the branches of a hyssop plant and I want you to dip the branches in the blood of the lamb and cover the door frames of your house with the blood. He said, when the angel comes through the camp, it'll see the blood of the Passover lamb and you will be spared and you will be free to go. It's with that story, that knowledge that David, after his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, utters these words. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. See, David's comeback starts with the realization that he says, God, I can't save myself. I can't come clean on my own. God, I I am the own demolisher of my own life. He says, hide me under the blood of the lamb. See, friends, if we're going to be a church of comebacks, it's time that we come clean. Some of you are here, and you've wrecked your life, or you're right on the brink of wrecking your life, and all you've been is uncomfortable this whole morning. Some of you are on a path to destroy your home. Some of you are so deep in isolation and boredom and pride that you're spending your nights convincing yourself that your habits, your false fulfillments are exactly what you deserve. And you're on this slow descent, tiptoeing into... broken by legacies of sin, pain of addiction. It started as tiptoeing. Marriage is wrecked by divorce. It started by tiptoeing. Children growing up wondering why dad was disengaged or mom was disconnected. Women lonely, longing for meaning and love. Men bored and not sure what God has for them. Today as we close, I want to invite you to utter the same words that David did. Hide me under the blood of the lamb. God, hide me. See, a fugue state, when somebody wakes up from a fugue state, they remember who they were. You know, the word repent actually means to return, to remember who God made us to be. As we pray today, I'm inviting you to a place to listen, if you have the courage, and, and some of you won't, and that's okay, but if you have the courage to come clean about the condition of your heart, I promise you that Easter this year is gonna mean more to you than you've ever experienced because you will recognize resurrection as real in your own life. Let's pray together.